So I want to thank uh, Kirby Lambert uh, for the, um, the invitation to speak with you, to address you at the end of your conference. Uh, and I have, I, I, it's been a real regret when I, uh, when I read through the program initially uh, not to be able to be here to participate and to listen to uh, many of the presentations which I, know, which I know have been superb, if only because I know many of the names of the, uh, of the presenters and uh, it looks like it's been a marvelous, marvelous time. I hope uh, you should give everybody a round of applause who's been involved in organizing the event. And as Bruce mentioned, I've been involved in, uh, with World War I myself for a few years now, uh, curating an exhibition at the Montana Museum of Art and Culture. Uh, and that exhibition did indeed open on Thursday night. And actually, this, I, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap of that show, uh, not, to, not so much to plug it, but to encourage you to continue to participate in, uh, in the ideas related to the Great War, uh, certainly this year and next year when MHS opens its own uh, exhibition as well. Um, this exhibition has afforded me a chance to indulge a passion for military history that I've always had, and specifically for this war, the Great War. Uh, in the process over the last four or five, actually longer than that, in the process of, uh, of uh, preparing myself for, uh, for this curating project, I've learned a great deal about the war, and I've had a, many, many opportunities to pause with gratitude and admiration for the sacrifices of men and women who, um, who went before us. Uh, and those were indeed great sacrifices. In fact, I think we're all here today, uh, not just because we love Montana and because we love its history, but in some ways because we're commemorating this great centennial and the, of the U.S. entry into the war. And in some ways, we are in, in our own way paying homage to, uh, to those sacrifices that were made. But I also believe that we're here because we wish to know our nation better and perhaps to gain a better perspective on the problems it faces today. So in the process of spending countless hours reading about the war, watching a lot of films and documentaries, traveling to conferences and even overseas to the major battle sites uh, over the last few years, certainly collecting artifacts for this exhibition and, uh, and talking with uh, lots and lots of specialists, in essence curating an exhibition, I've gained a great deal of knowledge about this war. Um, however, I think I've also had lots of opportunities to reflect on who we are as Americans today and how we got here. In fact, what the Great War does is it allows us to, uh, to ask fundamental questions about what it means to be American, and questions that in some ways can be answered uh, uh, with that terminus of the Great War and our participation in it. Some of the questions that, uh, that I've asked myself is, what is America's proper role of leadership in this world? How do we identify and characterize our enemy? How do we treat the stranger and the immigrant in our midst within our borders? What role should women and minorities play in the traditionally male uh, arena of war? What does it mean to be a true patriot and a hero? And how does the someone live, the soldier with trauma, return home from the battlefield? Um, I, I'm sure you're aware of Ken Burns' uh, documentary that's just uh, in the air now. Uh, on, on the Vietnam War. Again, these questions aren't modern contemporary questions, they're questions we've been asking ourselves for a long, long time in this nation. And I think, again, the Great War uh, offers us an opportunity to do that. Uh, we took as our tack in this exhibition, uh, not in some ways to try to address the war in its totality, it's too big, it's too huge, um, it's too complex uh, to do it in a one-shot exhibition. Um, we hope that this exhibition opens up many of those avenues and those doors and allows people to, to it whets their appetite for un, trying to understand um, this, uh, this incredible event that took place in our history and also to try to answer the questions, some of the questions that I've just asked you. 
We took the tack of telling the story through Montanans' stories. So we actually address, we use four individuals in, uh, four Montanans, and tell the story through their eyes, through their tales, their stories, their images, their art, and their artifacts. And I think that that's a, hopefully will be a productive way of understanding the war. That this, we think of Montana as somehow removed from global events, far, far away, uh, disconnected, isolated. And yet, we were quite present in World War I. I, I mean, you, promote, you probably know this, that we contributed very, in very, very high numbers, but also per capita, we were among the highest states to contribute to the effort. Because our wheat, our horses, our copper, that in some ways helped the Allies tremendously to, uh, to fight that battle. The Great War was great indeed. A century later, I think its dimensions are still immeasurable, either immeasurable if not incomprehensible to us. If greatness is measured in firsts, then the so-called war to end all wars was indeed a great war. The, war's first, the world's first truly modern war. Imagine war without tanks in the field, airplanes in the skies, submarines at sea. Imagine a war without high fire, precise artillery, machine guns, chemical weapons, radios and vehicles with combustion engines, transporting troops and equipment across vast territories. Imagine a war fought without the use of radio broadcasts, propaganda posters, photographs, and other print media. All of these things were novelties in the Great War, and they were used on a grand scale. And they set forth a paradigm for the way we think of war today and the way we fight wars today. So what I'd like to do this, uh, this afternoon is to address the role that art played in this war as an official weapon and as an ad hoc response to the brutalities and the indignities and also the victories of this event. And I also want to finish by discussing the ramifications that the war had on art in general, that is, on modern art, modernism, and the avant-garde. So that's our task for today. And by the way, just a, a, a little plug for the, uh, for the exhibition and for the MHS. Uh, I, I put a card out there at each of the tables, but I have more of these if you'd like, uh, if you want to visit us in Missoula and check out the exhibition. And also, the bookstore at MHS is selling the catalog for the show. It retails for $17. Is that, is that correct, Rod? Well, I believe it's $17. But here it is, and you're welcome to. Uh, they have copies next door if you're uh, interested in picking that up. So uh, I'll just briefly outline what that exhibition looks like. Uh, we're gonna, uh, we introduce the show by talking about the experience of a doughboy. In this case, a man by the name of Sidney F. Smith from rural Madison County, a young farmer who went off to battle. And his tale is actually, uh, in some ways, a typical tale, but also an exceptional tale. He was one of the heroes, one of the great heroes of the lost uh, uh, battalion, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the great moments of the American participation in the Meuse-Argonne campaign, which was arguably, still today, considered America's greatest uh, battle, our deadliest battle. Uh, that, by the way, on Monday, if anybody's in Missoula, as part of the university's president's lecture series, a man by the name of Joe Throckmorton, who is a distinguished filmmaker, will be premiering a film on the Meuse-Argonne campaign. It's a recreation of the film. Uh, it was recently purchased by the US War, uh, War Monuments Commission. And that film is now airing at all of the World War I sites uh, where the Americans participated in Western Europe uh, and, and World War I interpretive centers in the United States as well. Uh, so if you're interested, that film will be aired on Monday at 7.30 at the university. And then it'll be followed by the president's lecture from Joe Throckmorton. 
So we'll tell the story of that campaign in the exhibition as well with artifacts like the ones that you see here, his distinguished service cross for his valor and his heroism. Uh, you can read about that, uh, that campaign in the catalog to the exhibition. And Sidney w, uh, w. Smith uh, came back to Montana shell-shocked. And he spoke um, pretty eloquently for the rest of his life and wrote about what it meant to be shell-shocked and what it meant to live every night without being able to sleep because, uh, uh, because of the nightmares that, that haunted his entire life. His wife complained about not being able to sleep with her husband because the train passing by their home would set him off on uh, every single night. And he died as, what, as a victim of what we would call today PTSD. We also tell the story of this man, the aviator William E. Belzer from, uh, from Glasgow. And this is a man who, in some ways, um, was truly a pioneer. Because as you know, we went into the, uh, as you probably heard from Kate Hampton's uh, uh, talk, that we were woefully unprepared to fight World War I, to enter, at least uh, in, uh, to enter the, uh, the war in the air. Uh, under, understaffed, very, very few planes to speak of. We were, at the, we were at the mercy of training with the French and the English. And in fact, that's how William Belzer, this Montanan, got his start. First with, um, with uh, training with the French, and then months later, he was up in the air uh, doing missions and doing some heroic things. And I'm sure uh, Kate talked about this, but this was dangerous stuff. Flying was not easy at the turn of the last century. Uh, imagine flying in an open cockpit. It was cold. It was wet. Well, it was also France. It's always cold and wet in France. But this was dangerous stuff. At one point, he talks about, uh, about uh, literally flying 100 feet above the ground. Imagine how, how treacherous that was. And then, and then the Germans began putting weapons on their guns. So the, the whole aerial, uh, uh, aerial battles began uh, when he was there. And still, he was, in fact, a hero. We have his diaries. We have his, uh, his goggles. We have his helmet. We have uh, his, uh, his, uh, photo, his photo albums. It's truly an amazing uh, thing to be able to reconnect with, uh, with this exciting but also incredibly dangerous and uh, life-risking uh, uh, endeavor. The third character we introduce in the show is a woman by the name of Josephine Hale, who was widowed as a young woman in Great Falls. And, um, uh, Josephine Hale uh, did what, what any woman who wanted to serve could, the only thing that a woman could do, which was to join the Red Cross. She had lots of motivations for doing that. She was a, a French-Canadian ancestry, was fluent in French, and she wanted to go save France and Belgium. And she wanted to be there on the fronts. But of course, you know that, that women were discriminated against uh, in the war. And the only way that they could serve was, in fact, uh, through the Red Cross. So she trained as a nurse. We have her notebooks. We have her, uh, her uniforms. In fact, let me show you some of those things. Her photographs, uh, her drawings. Because all along the way, she began to train also as an artist while she was in, uh, in France working in, uh, in canteens. Her patches, her medals, um, uh, her uh, blood-stained aprons, uh, her arm covers, all of these things are in this exhibition. She did something very unusual. She lied to get into the war. Well, that's not unusual. A lot of soldiers lied to get into the war. They said they were older when they were 14 or 15, right? Well, she did it the other way. She was actually 40 years old, and the Red Cross had a cap of 35 for young women to serve. So she basically had to, to lie about her age in order to, uh, to be allowed to, uh, to go to France and, and work in a Red Cross canteen. 
So, and then when she returned uh, to the United States, she decided that actually she wanted to live in France. And so in the, in the 20s, she went back to France, uh, studied art history, studied painting, and became quite a, a, a reputable painter in, uh, in Paris, won all kinds of awards. And then finally, after the, uh, when the Great Depression hit, she came back to Great Falls, where she lived out the rest of her career as an artist. Uh, and also continued to nurse. We know that during World War II, she also volunteered as a nurse in, uh, 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 at the hospital, local hospital in, in uh, Great Falls. And then the fourth character we introduce is the man that you see there on the second from the right. Actually, that's him there. Uh, James Watson Gerard. He was the US ambassador to Berlin. Now, James Watson Gerard was not a Montanan, but he was married to a very important Montanan. And that's the woman you see there in the fancy hat and the fur. That's, uh, that's Mary Daly, the daughter of Marcus Daly of um, the Copper, Copper King fame. Uh, and of course, uh, Ambassador Watson and his wife spent a great deal of time in Montana. And the reason why uh, we included him in the exhibition is because we have all of his, art, his items, his things, at the University of Montana in the Mansfield archives. Um, these uh, invitations to the crown christening of the, uh, the, uh, the christening of the crown prince, the, uh, the Kaiser's birthday, invitations to, uh, to, other, to parties at the other embassies in the capital city of uh, the ally embassies, et cetera, et cetera. He was, in fact, a, uh, a darling of the imperial court in Berlin in the, uh, in the teens, in the early teens, and was actually there during the, the lead up to the US entry to the war. Um, and he and his wife were very active in helping Americans get back to the states, protecting Americans abroad, and also protecting uh, POWs, um, mostly uh, English and, French, and uh, Belgian and French POWs in German camps. All the while, he was quietly and secretly very critical of the empire, uh, of the Kaiser certainly in his speeches, and uh, so it was, not, it was no surprise that upon um, the US declaration of war on the German Empire, he was expelled. But his career actually took a very, very interesting turn uh, after that expulsion. Rather than going quietly into, uh, um, into the, the, the swamp, he actually became uh, quite an active advocate for the US fighting in the war. He became a great publicist traveled extensively, did a, a fantastic tour of Western states, and we have his, his huge scrap album of the Western tour where he cruised many of the towns here, including Elena, um, giving speeches in favor against, well, actually, in favor of the US entry to the war and against Kaiserism and imperialism. And I think of him uh, as a, also a pioneer in his own right. Um, he was a writer. He wrote two, uh, two great books, both of which were bestsellers. And uh, my four years in Germany became a blockbuster Hollywood movie. And it's the movie that's credited with saving Hollywood, not just with recruiting many soldiers to the effort, but it's really considered the epic first war, fl uh, war flick that, uh, that Americans saw, and, it, uh, and, it's, and it's credited with actually uh, rescuing the, uh, the, the whole industry. And there we see him actually when he began that, uh, that great uh, grand tour uh, publicizing the US effort. I also think of him as, as a prophet. And in fact, that quotation on the top, I'll just read it for you. If Germany wins this war, it means the triumph of the autocratic system. It means the triumph of those who believe not only in war for itself, but also in war as a high and noble occupation. And he goes on and on about, in some ways, predicting what would happen to Germany if it, if it lost this war and what would happen uh, if it won the war, which would obviously would have been a worse outcome. But I think in some ways he preempted the, uh, the conversation about what uh, actually took place in the 1930s and later in the 1940s.
So the last character we, we address in the exhibition is the enemy itself. And of course, the enemy is not a person. It's an abstraction. And I think that, that in some ways, this section of the exhibition is what allows us to ask the fundamental questions about how we define ourselves, and how do we find, define our role in the world, and how we define our antagonists in the world. And of course, back then, the enemy was clear to spot. The enemy was, in fact, the German soldier. The German was uh, the, the German leadership. And one of the things we try to do, since we have so many uh, sympathetic images of American soldiers in the war, was to balance this picture a little bit. And so we'll have medallions and, and monuments and certificates and the artifacts that belong to German soldiers as well, so that we see that their experience was almost as horrific as, uh, as our experience in the war. That's not to, to, to in any way uh, exculpate them from, uh, from fighting a, a very, very nasty war. But it is, in fact, an attempt to humanize this war uh, as well. So, um, and then we also focus on the leadership, Hindenburg, uh, and, men, and certainly Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the most easily identified protagonist uh, in the camp of the enemies. And he was so easy to satirize and because he was so thin-skinned and so petty and so mercurial. Uh, and, and the handlebar mustache, come on, it was just a joke. So in fact, lots of American posters, as you can see here, uh, Satir oh, I knew I was going to do something wrong. There we go. Okay, that's, that's the pointer. Satirize him as this kind of scary looking little character. Um, if you hear him speaking, and if you, uh, if you listen to the few cl uh, clips that exist of the emperor on a podium, you would think he was Adolf Hitler's daddy. The, form, the style of rhetoric and even the content of, of those speeches, it's almost as if uh, Hitler picked up the playbook from the, uh, Wilhelm II. And in fact, there are a, a, there's a great body of historians now who are looking at World War I and World War II as really the same war or the same effort. And, and certainly there's, there's continuity here, and that's one of the themes that we argue in this exhibition. But probably the most important way that we use to characterize the enemy was through a character, a fictional character known as the Hun. The Hun was a pejorative term that we used for Germans, and, and we created, we invented a, this, this icon. And the icon, by the way, is almost as recognizable and almost as popular as the icon of Uncle Sam, who was also uh, created during World War I. If Uncle Sam is indeed the most important character to come out of World War I in the American psyche, the Hun is probably the second one. And what was the Hun? Well, the Hun was a barbaric, ape-like creature, uncivilized, savage, who raped and pillaged and stole and, tra and ran, overran uh, civilized, uh, 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 civilized countries uh, with impunity. That's how we spoke about the enemy. That's how we satirized the enemy, how we characterized the enemy. And so these are two posters that, in fact, show us that, uh, that emblematic figure. And of course, the Germans hated this because they thought of themselves as the, as the most rational and civilized nation of Western Europe. How far apart we were uh, is evidenced by this caricature. And I think the caricature is also important in a, bigger, in a bigger sense, because what it unleashes is the idea that the enemy needs to be demonized. The enemy needs to be treated as subhuman. The idea that soldiers, that the enemy soldiers were worthy like we were, that they were equals on par with us, was dismissed by this idea of the Hun. And so this only exacerbates in the, uh, in the 1920s and in, certainly in the 30s and in World War II and beyond. And to this day, we continue to talk about our enemy as scurrilous dogs and as less than human. And that only begins with this, uh, with this figure of the Hun for the US military.
Okay, and so now to the topic at hand, and that is how, um, how the arts, in fact, were central as a weapon uh, and as a response to the Great War. Artwork, as you know, is a hub. It is a, uh, the artwork itself is a place where all kinds of ideas and ideologies converge. And so in some ways, it's a very convenient tool. We really, in some ways, we tell the story of uh, World War I, the Great War, by looking at these posters, by analyzing these posters. They, in fact, contain all of those ideas, all of, uh, all of the, uh, the, the contingencies of the battle. They're there. The demands of the battle, they are there. All of the ideas, the, the work of art is a way of reaching out way beyond simply the military, the military effort. These posters were pervasive. The photograph was pervasive, the print media was pervasive, the radio waves were pervasive, and they were all basically vehicles for carrying forth the message, generally the official message that the United States wanted con to convey about the enemy and the reasons why we were fighting this war. And they were also meant to pull at the heartstrings, to tug at us, and to in fact to uh, garner our support uh, for this effort. So the propaganda poster is essential for understanding the war. And it is, in fact, the place where art and war actually converge, where the two things meet. And remember, <coughs> World War I is the, the first war in which propaganda, visual propaganda, is used for the first time as an actual weapon of war. It becomes standard, but it happens here in this war. That doesn't mean that we didn't have recruitment posters before World War I. It doesn't mean that we didn't have images disparaging cartoons in the newspapers before World War I. But we had nothing like the kinds of campaigns uh, that we saw in World War I uh, uh, it, through these, these images and these posters. And what do these posters do? What are they supposed to function? Well, they function on multiple levels. They try to, in fact, do many, many things at the same time. First of all, they're recruitment tools. Their first purpose is to, in fact, not just recruit young men to serve and young women to serve in the Red Cross, but to recruit a home front. And these posters, in fact, built the home front. They told us what we were doing in the war and why we were there. And so it encouraged everybody to support the effort. They were also conveyors of ideology. So they basically tell us how, which, where our enemy is and why we are different from our enemy and, again, why we are fighting this war. And they attempt to do that, and they do that in a quite sophisticated, uh, sometimes subtle, and sometimes quite blunt fashion. They also were intended to raise funds for the war. So most of these posters, as you'll see, are, have a, a dual mission of, you know, there's a, the sort of the jingoism of go to war, go, go fight the enemy, but they're also buy U.S. war bonds, buy liberty bonds, et cetera. These were all campaigns that were driven by the need to raise money for the battle. And finally, they very, very clearly tell us who the enemy is and what the enemy is and what we're, why we are in this war and uh, what the stakes are. So again, here, here are those, those themes again, the recruitment poster. And of course, this is the most famous recruitment poster of them all, Uncle Sam wanting you for the US Army. And of course, you, you, you must know that this is, we, we didn't invent this idea, that there's a predecessor British poster of a British general doing the same thing, but of course, we have this knack in the United States for taking a really good idea, like Mexican food, and turning it into Taco Bell. So we took a pretty bad British poster and turned it into Uncle Sam. So uh, a very, very effective device for recruitment. And then, of course, conveying ideology, clearly telling us which side on the, of this battle we're on. We, by the way, 
um, were not neutral. For all the talk that came out of Washington of our neutrality, defending our neutrality, saving, uh, saving those, uh, the open seas, leaving the, uh, protecting the sea lanes for trade and, and, and enterprise, we weren't neutral. We, had, we, were ten, we were trading 10 times the rate with uh, England and France than we were with Germany. So the Germans had a stake in taking out our ships, sinking our, our merchant marines, uh, our, our merchant fleet. And, the, um, uh, and, and, and uh, anyway, the, the, the posters address that. And they basically tell us that once the Germans began, in fact, to, uh, to submarine our ships, and, our, and we were losing lives and property, then we had a, a reason to be in the war. And that's what that poster there, uh, encouraging Irishmen to support the battle on the left, and the one on the right to wake up America. Um, we, we need to be in, in, in fighting this, uh, this fight. Ideology is all over these posters. Sometimes it's quite blunt, and sometimes it's quite subtle. This is a poster, for example, that says, it says Americans all, and then it has this sort of allegorical figure uh, putting a, a wreath of laurels on a monument. And if you look carefully at those names on that monument, they're not Smiths and Andersons and, and, uh, and Johnsons. What are those names? Dubois. Oh, there is a Smith. Excuse me. There's a Smith. But there's also an O'Brien, right? And there's a Selka, and there's a Hauka, and there's a Papandrilokopoulos, and there's an Andrazi, and a Vilotto, and a Levy, and a Turovich, and a Kowalski. I'm not even going to try that one. <laughs> and a Newton, and a Gonzalez. What's the message in 1917 about America and about who we are as a country? Well, we're a nation of immigrants. And the war was, in fact, a great equalizer where all of the, these immigrants were, in fact, encouraged to buy war bonds, to, rec to join the, uh, the military, to serve, to become Americans, all. So this was a, a, it's an ideological poster, and it's quite subtle. All those communities would have recognized their, 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 themselves in an image like this. And the desire then to become American was present and, uh, and, and to a certain degree, uh, degree manipulated uh, by the government at the time. So recruitment was a huge deal, and also, but also fundraising was a huge deal. So posters like this one, which looks like a, uh, you know, a, a recruitment poster for the Boy Scouts, is actually uh, part of the Third Liberty Loan campaign. So it was, in fact, intended to raise bonds, uh, to raise funds for uh, the, the war itself. And to involve not just men of fighting age, not just men and women of productive, mature age, but also to involve children. Many of these uh, images were pitched at kids as well. So an entire generation was weaned on this kind of imagery. Uh, uh, euphoric, optimistic, uh, positive, um, but definitely manipulative as well. And of course, the enemy was identified in many ways, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the one on the left shows us the, the gumption of the American who, who is, he's going to take his coat off and he's going to go to war. Why? Because he's just read the caption on the, on the paper that says, Huns kill women and children. OK, when you get dead babies in the picture, you know you're being manipulated. More images that clearly identify the enemy. Okay, so the art, the uh, the war is also very interesting for the way that arts, the arts are used, and it's an, and the convergence between the visual arts, uh, not just in the propaganda poster, but in, in other aspects, is quite interesting to me. Uh, in our exhibition, we actually do a, a, a huge section on the idea of camouflage. 
Camouflage is another one of the novelties of this war. Camouflage was invented in the 19th century by the French. It was used sporadically in the 19th century. Uh, but by World War I, the French now created an entire division to basically create camouflage. And, it was, and the, the intent of it, of course, was to disguise weaponry and equipment and machinery, make it look naturalistic so that, it couldn't be, uh, so that the enemy couldn't tell uh, what the form of the object was. Uh, and certainly, it, they, the French began to apply it on a large scale in their own uh, ranks. The Americans had never used camouflage before, and we didn't do it officially in World War I, and yet our stuff is full of camouflage. And let me just show you some of that stuff. It's all homemade camouflage. And one of the things that I wanted to point out in this exhibition was that, in fact, soldiers were uh, designing all forms and types of camouflage, inventing it, as they, making it up as they went along. Imagine also that these soldiers spent hours and hours and hours in the trenches with nothing to do. And in fact, my friend Kevin uh, likes to say that war is 99% sitting around with nothing to do and 1% dying. Um, the, the soldiers spent hours in the trenches, and what did they do with their, their gear? Well, they painted their gear like this, they camoed their, op, their, their items, or they transformed, actually, these are uh, tanks. Um, my friend Keith Harden, actually, this, the guy who made the statement about the 99% the of uh, idle time, he spends a lot of idle time making models, and these are his models of uh, German, French, British tanks, uh, camouflage, as you can see in the exhibition. And, um, uh, well, actually, let me back up here for a second. Um, and these soldiers did two things. They either made, they either painted their insignias or, or camouflage on the gear, or they transformed the millions of shell casings and the, the military gear that was just litter, littering the fields around them into works of art. And I think what's happening here is quite interesting, sort of from a, uh, a psychological perspective. This is an industrial war, probably the first great industrial war. All the machinery is standard issue, all the equipment, all the, uh, the, uh, the artillery, everything is standard issue. It's coming out of factories. It's all standardized. It's brutal stuff. The texture of World War I is, in fact, industrial. These items are made, they're designed by industrial planners and thinkers, right? And, and made in factories. And yet, what these soldiers did with this stuff is they humanized it. And they humanized it by painting it, by hammering at it, by tinkering at it. I was reading an account in a German, uh, in a German diary, a German soldier's diary, where he says that what they heard for hours was hammers on both sides of the lines. Hammers, what were they doing? Everybody was making trench art. That's what, uh, that's what the sound of the war was. So we wanted to have plenty of this trench art and to talk about that there was this official uh, camouflage, and then there was this camouflage that was indeed uh, made by every soldier who had access to uh, cheap paints. So there, um, this is also an interesting chapter in the war, and that's the, the dazzling of great ships. So at sea, what they did is they took battleships, and they painted them with these kind of odd patterns. And the, the intent of these odd patterns was, in fact, to disguise the shape of the ship so that you couldn't see it from a submarine or from a distance from another battleship. Um, the idea was to break up its form. And also, to, uh, one can tell how fast a ship is going and in which direction it's going by basically by watching the wake. What's, what are the waves doing? And so here, you'll notice that the sides of the, they have artificial waves painted on the sides of the ship so that it's, in fact, so that uh, the enemy couldn't see either how fast the ship was going, how far on the water or below the water the ship was, or how fast it was moving. 
This is official art. And it's interesting because it converges with the, the modern art of the time, which was cubism. So there, it's this wonderful place, one of those rare instances where modern art actually converges with, uh, with military necessity or military utility. So this is a painting by the Russian uh, cubist artist Alexandra Exter uh, from uh, the, uh, the period immediately after the war. Uh, but it's the kind of images that designers used when they in fact dazzled these uh, large ships with their own version of camouflage. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the images that we have in the exhibition that uh, bear taking a second look are this art made in places like this, in the trenches of the, uh, the battlefields. And that art is known as trench art, and it looks something like this. Enormous shells, sometimes in you know, small size, but sometimes really large things. And the soldiers actually uh, uh, hammered away and sized these things, engraved these things. And what did they put on, the, on, these, um, on these artifacts? They put their division and their infantry, uh, their infantry divisions, and they put their, their monikers and their nicknames and their logos, and they often put their big signatures and sometimes the name of their girlfriends back home or their wives, uh, usually the, a, loca a locator telling them where they were. Lots of images of the Statue of Liberty and American Eagles and, the, and, and Old Glory and images like that, <laughs> images that represented home, right? But they also put lots of images of girls, like nudie girls, right? <laughs> <laughs> Remember, these guys were making these objects not knowing whether they were going to be there tomorrow, whether they were ever going to get that leave to Paris after all. Uh, so these objects are quite amazing things. They're emotional things. They are, in some cases, the last marks that these men made on this good old earth. So they're uh, powerful things. They're not just wor works of art. Yes, they are indeed. They're not just really interesting evidence of craftsmanship. They're also, in some ways, th these guys' um, desires, their values, their aspirations at their last moments of their lives, and they knew it. So these are amazing things. This is a, uh, a helmet, a, uh, a Yankees helmet, that was beautifully painted with a battle scene. Actually, let me turn to this side since I'm ignoring you guys over here. You'll see there's an enormous battlefield with airplanes in the air, tanks on the ground, all the novelties of this battle. There's even guys hauling a body off a stretcher. You even see a, Scots, a Scottish uh, soldier in, a, in, a, in his kilt. Um, and that, that uh, is the crowning moment of a lamp. So it has a helmet at the top and then two bulbs and then an enormous shell casing that forms the body of the lamp. And I'm sure that was a really lovely thing to have in the man cave in 1921 or 1919. Um, and then, of course, on the top of the whole thing, you see the, the flags of the allies uh, in glory above the, uh, the battlefield. That object there on the left that looks like a musical instrument started off as a doughboy's hat, as a, hel as a steel helmet. You see that? And then they, put, they transformed it into a musical instrument. It sounds awful, by the way. We've strummed it a couple times. Can't even be tuned, it's so bad. OK. So to finish this off, I want to talk a little bit about modern art and the war. And there is, in fact, a connection. And it's not a very happy connection. Some, say, some argue that, in fact, that, uh, that um, modern art was used by the war, by, by all the allies and their enemies. That in fact the states employed artists in the service of propaganda. Therefore, much of the art that we have here is really not art. 
it, uh, uh, the trench art aside, much of the art that is the official art commissioned by the states is in fact propaganda because it is in fact biased. It's not made in a kind of free context, it's made under duress. And it's made by the exigencies, the demands of the war effort. So much of the art of World War I is in fact official art and it's boring from an artistic perspective. It's dull. And I like to think that it's warmed over art from the 19th century. It's retrograde. That beautiful image of the dame putting the laurel wreath, that stuff, imagine, that is contemporary with a Pablo Picasso, a Pablo Picasso cubist abstraction. So in fact, much of the art of World War I looks backwards in time. It looks back to the, 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 the comfort and the familiarity of themes and ideas and images of the 19th century. So in some ways, World War I could be perceived as a threat to modernism. The art of the war is, in fact, threatening to the avant-garde and the, the experiments that were taking place in Western Europe uh, starting in about 1907, 1910, and forward. So there are some people who actually see much of this art as pretty much junk, that, in fact, it's only after the war that then the avant-garde is allowed to pick up again and there's a new market for abstraction and modern art that then we go back to no things as normal and this art is then relegated to the dustbins of history where it belongs. Wow, it's pretty heavy, isn't it? So it's important for us to understand that there were modern artists who, in fact, took part in this. And some of their designs, particularly in these posters, is quite abstract and quite amazingly modern. For example, this poster here. It's all word and a very, very simple uh, a reduced image. It depicts the enemy not as a barbaric Hun literally raping and pillaging or as an ape, you know, whatever. It doesn't need to satirize or caricature the German Kaiser. It does this thing very, very subtly. All we see is a set of boots, blood-stained, right? And you see the uh, imperial arms on the, on the top of the boots, right? And then it says the caption, keep these off the US. The message couldn't be any clearer. That's the benefit of that kind of reductive uh, abstraction that we see in contemporary art of the time. So there was indeed modern art, but most of the art of the time looks like it could have been made in, in 1850. It could have been made a century earlier. Why? This is what was familiar to people. So recognizable, beautiful dames, uh, uh, figures, heroic figures like Joan of Arc on the, on the lower right of the screen, uh, images that in fact were uh, representational, naturalistic, and quite old-fashioned by 1917. Much of these posters are indeed artistically, stylistically, very old-fashioned. Here's another poster of, uh, of a typical doughboy charging the field. But here we see an interplay in some ways between what is familiar, what is traditional, and what is also novel. And that is that simplicity of design, uh, a kind of a very quick message uh, in the posters. So the better posters are the ones that do that, that in some ways straddle the two ages, the modern age and the art of the 19th century. But the monuments that were, that were then erected after the war and that we put in our courthouses and our cemeteries and in our, our, our civic uh, spaces or whatever tend to, be, in fact, look backwards to an, uh, an earlier moment. They're not modern art by any stretch of the imagination. This is the famous statue of a doughboy, and there were actually two of them that competed for, uh, for the, the, the most popular design in the country, and they were made in all kinds of sizes. In fact, we have one in Missoula uh, right next to the courthouse. Uh, this is uh, Paulding's design called Over the Top, and it really shows a, uh, it's a very popular image that was reproduced in hundreds of, of, um, of uh, civic spaces around the country. This is official art. This is commemorative art. It's full of sentiment, sentimentality too. 
and in some ways, art historians have dismissed this stuff in some ways because of its retrograde stylistic nature. It was, in fact, looking backwards to monuments from the 19th century and not so much looking forward or even looking to the present, to the art of its time. Uh, this is John Singer Sargent, uh, our, our wonderful uh, turn-of-the-century American painter. He was a realist painter. And in some ways, the war is the last gasp of, of realism in, uh, in America. Uh, actually, not just in America, in Western Europe as well. It, the war actually employed all of these artists who had been very successful in the 1890s and in 1900 and in 1910, and things started to dry up as people began to do abstract art. And all of a sudden, this alien art form was, in fact, overrunning the visual arts. They were sort of left behind drawing recognizable images. So this is his great painting. This was done for the Imperial War Museum in London. Uh, an amazing image of, uh, of the, uh, the, the battle, a battle scene of, uh, where mustard gas has just recently been used. So let's talk, to finish off, the, the legacy of the Great War and modern art, what it did to modern art. Well, there were real losses, and I'm talking about real artists who lost their lives in the war. Uh, for example, this is, the, this is the, the, the American painter Marsden Hartley, uh, one of our early abstract artists in America. And this is a painting called The Portrait of a German Officer. We know that the abstraction is actually a portrait of his lover, a man by the name of Karl von Freiburg, who died um, in Germany, actually who died in France um, in, uh, in the battle before the US went into the war. And so this image here, where, and, and we, we, the allusions to, uh, to Karl von Freiburg are his initials. You see them in the lower part of the screen. Here, let me use the pointer. There it is. K von F, so it's his initials. His unit, uh, the number 24, I believe, is also on there. Uh, oh, actually, 24 is his age. His regiment number is number four. Those are subtle, quiet allusions to a man who is, is dead, who's being represented here by all the attributes of the German Empire, uh, it, the military insignias, the, color, uh, the colors of the German imperial flag, et cetera, et cetera. A, a subtle image. The man lost his life in the war. And he was, in fact, eulogized through uh, Marsden Hartley's painting. This is the work of Auguste Maca, who was a, uh, a friend of, 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 um, of Marsden Hartley, at a time when Americans were still friendly with Germans who actually knew each other. Auguste Maca was a, a marvelous uh, Cubist painter. And you can see some of that sort of cu uh, Picasso-like Cubism in this painting done in 1912, just ahead of the, uh, the, the breakout of war. German. Uh, 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 expressionist August Maca died in action in Champagne on September 26, 1914. So two years later, he was dead. Hundreds of artists died in, in the battle, and he's just one of them. The famous Franz Marc, uh, this is his yellow cow at the Guggenheim in New York City. This was painted in 1911, again before the war. Before the war. Uh, he died on action, uh, in action in, uh, on March 4, 1916. Uh, so, uh, so we lost Franz Marc to the war. The Italian Umberto Boccioni, the father of Italian futurism, a modernist movement. And this is his very famous sculpture called Action in Chains, which I think, actually, this is 1913. I think this is as powerful an image of war as any, any, post, any propaganda poster, only it's war abstracted. Uh, this striding figure, by the way, the work is, has an abstract title. It's not soldier moving or, or, or doughboy lobbing a grenade. It's actually a machine moving across the landscape. And that's very much the way the futurists saw uh, modern civilization. They 
celebrated industry. They celebrated the new materials, the new, uh, in the, 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 the new technologies of the, the age. And I think this striding sort of Darth Vader-like form, actually there's a black version that I almost showed of this same bronze, and I should, you know, it, look, it looks a lot like Darth Vader, um, or one of those guys in Star Wars. Uh, these themes sort of repeat, you know. Uh, anyway, I think this is as, as powerful an image of war as any of the posters that we've been looking at so far. Anyway, Boccioni also died in, uh, in World War I, and in some ways ended the, uh, the whole movement, the, the Italian Futurist movement. He was actually trampled by a horse uh, at the age of 33. So he didn't die in action, but he died uh, serving nonetheless. And then finally, I want to show you the work of Keita Kolwitz, who I think is a very, very interesting artist and a woman who, uh, and, and actually, I think the peace movement, by the way, universally was a victim of the war. So you could argue that, uh, that pacifists, not only, we know that, that pacifists were harassed and hounded and jailed in America, uh, that uttering uh, an sentiments, anti-war anti sentiments in America were, uh, were prosecutable offenses. Um, uh, so the peace movement, in fact, was, uh, was a huge trade-off to supporting the war effort. And Kata Kolwitz was a pacifist. Uh, she was a German. She lost the, 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 uh, the, the son that you see here on the right, her, younger, uh, her youngest son, Peter, uh, was killed in action. And it launched a, it sent her into an unbelievable depression, which she recorded in these very, very, very powerful self-portraits, image of herself. Um, Keita Kolwitz then spent the next few years after the war creating this monument, which was an homage to her dead son and his, uh, his fellow brothers in arms. Uh, and this is a cemetery just across the, uh, the Belgian border, a German cemetery. And rather than having an, homage, an image of glory and of victory and, and uh, a towering figure of uh, success, what this is is the most humane look at what the war actually did. And what the war did was it took away her son. And this is what the rest of that monument looks like. This, you don't often see this. You almost always look at the images. So this tells you a little bit about Keita Kolwitz's vision of war, certainly her experience of World War I. But then as, uh, to end this, as a postscript, I just want to point out that Keita Kolwitz then lost her, uh, her grandson, Peter Kolwitz, in World War II, uh, who died in action. So on that cheery note, thank you very much.